welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded view in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, December 15th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. In today's text, St. Paul gives instructions to the Corinthians concerning speaking and silence during their worship services, so that things would be done decently and in order. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be with you today. Pastor Andrews, as we get started, help us with some context. What should we know about this epistle and the text leading up to our section of chapter 14 today? Well, the city of Corinth is a, a fairly wealthy port city in the Roman Empire, and it is located in, I always forget if it's pronounced Achaia or Achaia, uh, the, the region it's a part of. Potato, just west, Yeah, just west of the uh, Aegean Sea there. And so it's a place that, that Paul has visited in the past, and he has planted a church there on his second missionary journey. And he's writing this letter, 1 Corinthians. It appears to be after some correspondence with them already. He's learned of various divisions that are happening in their congregation. And in many ways, the letter takes them to task on these various things. I mean, they're, they're in argument over who they should follow. They're in argument over how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Worst of all, they're in argument over whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that's chapter 15's text. But so much going on, so many divisions for Paul to speak to. And one of those divisions is over the prophetic gifts, which is what chapter 14 is, is primarily taking up. Mm. So we're going to talk again about tongues, prophesying, any just kind of basic, what are we talking about, tongues and prophecy, before we dig into the particular text? What's, what's, it, what's going on here? Well, the idea of speaking in tongues uh, seems to be two distinct things in, in the New Testament. The, the Acts 2 Pentecost Day miracle is, I think, very unique compared to speaking in tongues in the rest of the text, where that day the apostles suddenly begin to speak in other languages, and everyone present can understand them in their own language. But here, and in other places that we see speaking in tongues, it's something that can't be understood. It's something that needs to have someone who can interpret it. So it is some kind of speaking that is a language not known to man, but that is a communication between man and God. The other side, though, of, of prophesying, this gets into Joel chapter 2, and Peter uses it in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. The idea of prophesying is simply to be one who speaks God's word. And so we have certainly the Old Testament prophets who, who prophesied. Their job was to speak God's word to his people, and because of their office, that often included God giving them insight into what was to come, uh, both good and bad of the future, and they could relay that message, call the people to repent. If you do, here's how God will treat you. If you don't, here's what's going to come to pass. And 
I guess in a way, in the New Testament era, we have a bit of that because we know some of the future. We know of paradise. We know of a new heaven and a new earth. We know what happens if people repent and what happens if they don't. We know the forgiveness as well as the judgment of the Lord, his kindness and his severity. Um, so, yeah, we're called to prophesy. And at the beginning of this chapter, Paul has called that the greater gift and even said that he would rather speak five words in church that could be understood uh, than thousands that are in a tongue. So I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, Pastor Andrews, on the tongues, if that's all okay. right. I, I do think that what's going on here in chapter 14 is the same thing as is in Acts chapter 2, in the sense that the tongues that are spoken of in both places are recognizable languages that if people were there who did understand, they would understand. Like, as we talked about yesterday with Pastor Ill, it would be as if I, though I have never studied Mandarin Chinese, I would suddenly start to speak in that language now, apart from the normal course of language learning. Uh, like, you know, you could use Babel or whatever app there is. That's the way that I would understand the speaking in tongues in chapter 14. Uh, part of the, and we didn't talk too much about this yesterday, but I think it's, it's worth, part of the reason that I, I do think that is because I see Acts 2 as a very clear text as to what speaking in tongues is, and using that language from Acts chapter 2, which seems very clear, and you see a similar language here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, to understand what I would say is a less clear text in chapter 14 as to what's going on. That's the reason that I, I do think that what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 is more very much in line, perhaps not the exact same thing, because there, there aren't people from every tribe, nation, language like there were gathered in Jerusalem in Acts 2, but something very similar to what's happening there is happening in 1 Corinthians 14. That's why I would I take it personally. That's fair. And I, I still I think Acts 2 is more of a universal tongue and a universal miracle than what we see here, which is even if it is like a, another language that man can understand, you need somebody there to interpret it. Absolutely. And yeah. So okay. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. And that that does seem to be what's very missing. If if there are comparable situations, that's what's very missing in Acts chapter not Acts, first Corinthians chapter 14 is that the the matter of translation or interpretation, and I think, you know, interpretation, maybe we should simply understand it as translation, that's what's missing in the Corinthian church, which is leading to a number of abuses, it seems, when it comes to being puffed up rather than building up. That was a, a very important theme in the first part of chapter 14, which is going to continue into this text, a lot of what we read yesterday about that edification of the church that is needed when it comes to the use of these gifts. Paul's going to Put some put some meat and bones on it today as to how it what does it actually look like when you get together for worship? Uh, how does how does that look? What does it mean to build each other up in the use of these gifts? So that's what we got before us today. Any more introductory comments, Pastor Andrews? No, I don't All think right. so. So we have the latter part of chapter 14 today. Paul writes, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, 
then the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's our text for today. It's 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. Pastor Andrews, as our text begins, Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers. We've seen him address the Corinthians as fellow Christians throughout this epistle. Help us to see the significance yet again in this spot. What's, why is it important in this context? Well, as we have introduced it today with the idea that this is a heavily divided congregation on many matters, they're still brothers. That's a, that's a useful reminder. You are the body of Christ, which is, I believe, chapter 12 language, right? Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, uh, both on the body of Christ. We're one body. And so even when we might not be getting along together well, or even when we have disagreements, we're still family. We're still brothers. And so this is a useful reminder, a call for unity in the church, as we should. We should forgive one another. We should seek to be reconciled. And Paul, in a way, is doing that as he writes this epistle to them, that they would be seeking uh, reconciliation with uh, faithful living, faithful practice, um, and sound doctrine. Yeah. I mean, Paul addressing them as brothers, I think, is an indication that he's doing the same thing that he's encouraging the Corinthians to do, is to build—he's trying to build this church up. He's not trying to tear them down. There is instruction they need. There is correction that they need. But he does so as a brother in Christ, one who is seeking to build this church up, not to tear them down. And that's that's very important for us to think about our, our interaction with fellow members of the body of Christ, that we would interact with each other if, if there are cases of instruction or correction, that we do so with the intent of building up, not of tearing down. And to see Paul doing that as 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 the apostle, right? If there's someone that that had any kind of authority to, to do the opposite, it would have been someone like the Apostle Paul. Uh, but he chooses to, to act in that Christian love to build up this congregation, as he's been doing all along. And he does so here, it seems, in the context of, of a worship service. So uh, help us to, to get a picture as best we can. I know that sometimes the details aren't entirely clear in this epistle as to, to what we should picture, but there's, there's a picture, I think, that we can get in our mind. What, is, what does Paul have in mind as he starts to talking about them coming together here? Yeah, uh, before that, just a quick note on what you were saying about tearing up and uh, tearing down and building up. Even where we see tearing down, it, it's done for the intent of building up. Yeah. So 1 Corinthians 5, excommunicate that brother for his own good and, and for the good of the church. The call of excommunication is a call done to bring about repentance. When Jesus talks about being a vine uh, and, and talks about how the Father prunes us, mm. um, yeah, suffering and, and trials, but in order that we would grow in our faith. So even yeah. even those things, uh, when done rightly, as we see in Scripture, can be used to build up, and this is good. So, all right, what do we see in our, 
our text in regards to worship, I think outside of our text, Acts chapter 2 again, uh, gives us a pretty nice idea of what the basic pattern of worship may have included. Uh, Acts 2.42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, so a lot of uh, connection there with the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And so as we have those basic things, uh, apostles' teaching, we would just talk about the scriptures today, fellowship, so the gathering of the brothers, the Lord's Supper, and praying. Those are basic parts of our own worship services. And as we look at verse 26 here, they're coming together. They're bringing forward things that they want to include in worship. They want to bring hymns. And the Greek word behind that is psalmus, psalms. They want to sing psalms together. They want to bring lessons or, or teachings. They, they want to bring revelations, tongues, interpretations. That would be these other pictures common in the chapter. So they want to bring things that can be used for the purpose of teaching and building up in the body whether it's by spoken word or sung word. Now, as, as he lists those different things that are a part of their gathering, it seems that the, the contrast that he's going to draw is between what they are doing, it seems like the emphasis is on the, the each one has this, and each one wants to use this. How do you put it to use? Let all things be done for building up. That seems to be the, rather, I mean, all of the different things that are listed, those are going to be various aspects of their gathering together, but the big thing that he's going to emphasize here is each one has it, use it for building up. Yeah, I mean, we've all heard the phrase, everyone has an opinion. Um, <laughs> it's no different for them in their era. They all have something to say. They all want to share it. And with the next couple of verses here, we get the impression that they were all trying to share it at the same time. It almost you, you picture that, that shouting match where everybody's trying to get their word in, that helps no one. Um, but rather, if we, if we slow it down, if we take the time, if we take turns, we can use these things for the, the building up of one another, which has been a theme, as you mentioned before, throughout this chapter, and is elsewhere too. I mean, I think of Hebrews chapter 10, where we're told when we gather together, uh, we are to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. I mean, that's one of the primary functions of, of worship, is that we encourage each other. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. so this, is, this getting together is, is an important thing for Christians, to gather together to encourage, to build each other up, not, not for my good only, but for the good of, of the entire body. So when you come together, each one has these things— let them be used for the building up, for the encouraging. And so he starts to give some pretty practical application, some pretty practical instruction, as he again, especially talks about tongue speaking in tongues in verse 27. Help us with the next verse. Yeah, reasonable guidelines, right? Where if you've got these, I don't know, let's say they have 20 people that want to speak in a tongue that day, if they all just start shouting out in their tongue, nobody's heard. And so if you wish to speak in a tongue, uh, let's limit the number. I don't know, maybe that's done just so that the meeting doesn't last all day, but let's limit the number. Let's go in turns. But with this verse in particular, in comparison to prophecy, somebody's got to be there to interpret. So if you're going to speak in tongues, the interpreter must also be present. Otherwise, and we'll see that in verse 28, uh, don't speak. 
Well, take us into verse 28, because it really does go go together here, this matter of how many, but then if there's not an interpreter, just be quiet. Yeah, I mean, speaking in tongues, again, it's it's not understood by the congregation. It does no good. Um, they just basically see somebody rambling, babbling, but they can't understand it. Unfortunately, part of the church's history is this way, as a lot of worship services were held not in the language of the people, but in Latin. And so they're, they're standing there, and my understanding of, of church at that time was the people would actually stand there and they would just talk to each other while the service was going on. Um, and that doesn't so, happen today, does it, Pastor Andrews? Oh, uh, no, never. <laughs> anyway, so the goal here is, again, for the building up. And so if you've got the interpreter, fantastic. Go ahead, speak in tongues, let it be interpreted. Let the people hear what was being said. But if not, just move on to the prophecy. Move on to those who are, are seeking to teach and, and to build up in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you did. You did bring up the the medieval context and into the Reformation as well of the what language do you have church in, and in in the Lutheran confessions, the first part of chapter 14 is brought up when they talk about the the fact that the Lutheran reformers, when they celebrated the worship service, they used German. They didn't get rid of the Latin entirely. You can, when you read about that, that's an, it's an article 24 of both the Augsburg Confession and its apology. They talk about this. And again, it's from the first part of this chapter, but it applies. I think it's, it's, it's worth noting that's the way that, one of the ways that this text gets applied in, in our church history is that, well, what language do you worship in? It, it ought to be a language that, that people know, that they can understand, not one that they've never heard before or never used. Even five simple words, I'm, we could try to come up with the best five-word sentence, right? But even Jesus loves you, spoken in English to an English audience, is going to do so much more uh, than speaking that in a, a word that well, that's not going to impact them. Sure, sure. And this is, again, it, it's certainly something that comes up in the Lutheran Confessions. It's something that our own church body has has struggled through here in, in this country in the transition from being a, a primarily German-speaking church body at first and into the, now a primarily English-speaking church body. And we continue to to think about as we do mission work and translating the scriptures and, and providing church resources into uh, languages that people people know. So again, although the—well, and here, this, this may lead us into the next part of the conversation. Although— it does seem that speaking in tongues, as it was happening in Acts chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14, has often disappeared from the church. The thing about being able to understand what is preached is very applicable. You, you in your notes, Pastor Andrews, you mentioned cessationism, which is something that has come up a time or two here in some of our recent conversations on Sharper Iron. Should we? How should we think about these gifts of, of both prophecy and speaking in tongues within the church today? So this would go back to our our disagreement, and we're brothers, right? Our yeah. disagreement earlier about what the speaking in tongues represents. If it is, as you suggested, the idea of speaking in tongues being, say, Mandarin, for example, um, then such gifts certainly still remain within the church, that we can speak in other languages, we can learn other languages, and then we can be present in order to help interpret those languages. So if a missionary goes to another country that doesn't speak English, they hit the ground running and spend months learning that language in the field, in practice, but they still need that person there who can help 
make those connections for them as they they try to share Christ with other people. And just so those just briefly, Pastor Andrews, because what you're saying, uh, yes, absolutely, we need to do that. I would not call that, though, the gift of tongues, because you're learning it in what I would call a normal process. Uh, the, the gift of tongues, as I would understand it, is, although it is a, a known language, it still is revealed by the Holy Spirit in a an immediate way, in a way that apart from the normal means of you know going through a class. So I would I would still count that as not the gift okay. of tongues as being described. But we are brothers, as you said. Indeed. Sharpening so, the faith. The the cessationist word, as you mentioned, I was applying that more to the the miraculous side, which would even then perhaps apply to how you just described tongues I from would. your perspective there. Yeah. Um, that the Spirit has immediately bestowed this cessation, um, cease, to stop, is, is what that word comes from. And that's the idea that the Holy Spirit, while He once provided these particular gifts, and healing gets included in this wave of gifts as well, uh, that He has ceased to do so. And I think to put that argument as, as simply as possible is that in that early day, the apostles had the ability, as the Holy Spirit had been directly poured on them, separate from the idea of baptism. We all receive the Holy Spirit and faith in baptism, and this is good, but the Holy Spirit came upon them in a special, particular kind of way that gave them these other gifts. And then the apostles had the ability, the way I've heard it said, is they had the ability, as they laid on hands on brothers, to pass on such gifts. But what they didn't have was the ability to pass on the ability to pass on the gift. Did that make sense? So as I yes, I think so. So that this when when you see the apostles again the holy spirit coming through the the laying on of hands in that way it, it that gift of the holy spirit again beyond baptism it's an important clarification that you've made there. That was given then to the one who received it from the apostles but it didn't continue historically speaking in an unbroken chain say down to you and to me today in that particular special way that gift of the Holy Spirit beyond what he has given in in baptism. Right, and I mean, some of the gifts certainly still remain. I mean, he has given some to be teachers, right. and some to be, in this case, the other word we're dealing with in the text is prophets. Um, I still relate this to Joel 2 and Acts 2, and the idea that we are all given to prophesy. And so that connects to verse 29, uh, let two or three speak, and then let others weigh what is said, right? Um, so we we are to speak, and then we discuss what's been said. Um, I don't know that we get this a lot in our own context today, uh, but the idea of you've got the word read, and then you've got the word preached, proclaimed, we kind of miss the maybe the conversations ongoing afterward, unless the family or a group of families gathers together after church to do so. That's a good practice to do, Pastor Andrews, is to, to speak to these things that we've heard together in public worship, to talk about them within our families, and then within families who have gathered together, say, in Bible study afterwards, or sometimes these things happen before, uh, but that's a, that's a very good practice to, to speak about these things together. Uh, when it comes to that matter of cessationism, just briefly, uh, and this is just my, my own thought, I don't know that we have the ability to say that we know for certain the Holy Spirit has stopped doing these things because he's God, and he can do whatever he wants because he's God. Indeed. <laughs> but I do think, historically speaking—well, I, I, we, we can say this, and I've, I've mentioned this before, that 
we don't see a promise that the Holy Spirit will always bestow these gifts in the same way in every place and every time. And so if we don't have a promise, then we don't have anything we can bank on. And we always have to, we have to keep that in mind. And I do think historically speaking, we have seen less and less of this as the Holy Spirit continues to desire to work his gift of faith through the Word, and as that Word continues to be proclaimed, that we do historically see less of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the way that it was done through the hands of the apostles in the book of Acts, and and as described here in this letter, perhaps not to the point of being, at least in, in the way I would speak about, not dogmatic about cessationism, but practically speaking, it seems that that's mostly the case. Yeah, and it, it's it's I think back to the idea of of necessity that the yeah. maybe the the miracles like this in the early church helped them to show that they had the authority that God had vested in them and going back to the Old Testament prophecies as well about what the what would happen in the church whereas Colossians 1 Paul says twice in the chapter that the gospel has been proclaimed to every nation already mm-hmm. and so now it's just the christian living out their faith in those communities the gospel's already there the word of god's already there so love your neighbor, serve your neighbor. And that doesn't need miracles. That's not to say God doesn't still do miracles. I believe he does. Um, But I think it's the idea of vocations and things that we often will talk about within Lutheranism. Sure, sure. Yeah. And again, to to take a look from the scriptures, when we think about these things, we should pay attention. What has God promised to do? And where he's promised to do something, we hold him to that promise. We expect him to keep it because he will. Where he hasn't promised to do things, but he has done those things in the past, we can certainly see that those things are are possible for him to do, but to expect them or to say these things have to happen in order for there to be a true Christian church or a true Christian, that's where sometimes some fellow American Christians go go off the deep end in in a way that ends up being unhelpful for the church. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, uh, what promises do we still have that we're waiting for from the Lord? And, and the last one I always try and encourage my, my congregation with is those last words in Scripture, uh, that the Lord says, Behold, I am coming soon. That's a promise. Yep. Uh, let's hold him to that one. So That's pray right. for it. Yep, and so we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. And that is a, a prayer that we do see within the, the context of this epistle. We've seen some end times thinking, looking forward to that return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to become more prominent as we continue from here, but we get to keep looking at 1 Corinthians 14 together this morning. We need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Steve Andrews this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, December 15th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we left off about verse 30, where Paul is speaking about prophecy, its role within the Christian worship service, and the way that is to be enacted there in the church in Corinth. He uses this term, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Verse 31, just to, to kind of connect these thoughts, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And then also verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. There's a number of topics within those three verses, Pastor Andrews. Yeah, I mean, so first off is kind of the question, well, what's he mean revelation in verse 30? And I guess is it's connected to what you were saying earlier about the gift of tongues being kind of the immediate miracle of the Holy Spirit, that it seems to be here that the Holy Spirit might indeed make known to somebody in a moment um, something he wants his people to know, again, as he did with his Old Testament prophets. So if you're sitting there in church in this picture and, and the guy sitting next to you is given a message from the Lord, all right, let's all stop and let's hear what, what now needs to be said. But it's, it's discussed in verse 30 as a matter of taking turns. So still in order, in good order, because otherwise it does no good. If, if he just, you know, John just starts yelling stuff out while Frank's still talking, um, neither of them can be understood. That's right. So so take take turns, right? Don't just all shout over each other. This is the body building each other up as each one has these things. But then also in, in verse 32, it says the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So it's not a an unbridled, hey, this is, you used the word opinion earlier. Everyone's got an opinion. Paul isn't talking about opinions here when he says the spirits of prophets being subject to the prophets. There's a There's a standard, it sounds like. Right, and, and that standard is going to be the Old Testament prophets. Um, we're, they're called to speak God's word. And so as you speak, you're, you're right to say this isn't just offer up your opinions. That's, our opinions can be out of line, but if we're speaking God's word, we, we're not out of line. So I think my own wrestling with this verse is to, to know what, what each word prophet means. I think it's safe to say the spirit of the prophets is those who speak now. So like you and I, for example, or in the case of this text, whoever is in the church in Corinth. But when they're subject to the prophets, I think we could read that two different ways. So the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the prophets of old, um, so make sure, and we talk this way today, like if somebody says something, we can check it with Holy Scripture. We can discern whether this is good or not. If it fits, thanks be to God. If not, um, well, then we should have less of this. Uh, it should not be. And I don't think that's a fair criteria for pastors today in our churches, right? If, if their teaching and preaching doesn't line up with God's word, that's not good. So test it by the prophets. The other way I think we could see it is the same way we see the first one. Let the prophets be subject to the prophets. So as one man gets up in the community to preach and to teach, the other brothers in the church, uh, they get to discern his preaching and teaching. And it's not just you know, one man going and misleading the church, but rather we're all learning together. We're all building up one another. Sure. And there might be a little bit of both going on here. I think as you see it continue into the practice of the church today, you do see both things going on here. Even just thinking about the placement of the sermon within the worship service. And I know there's some there are some 
options as to how exactly these things are ordered, but right around the sermon, you always have the scripture readings and you have the creed. And so those those two gifts are, are the, I mean, you've got the voices of the prophets and the apostles themselves, those writers of sacred scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God, and also the creed, the confession of the Church throughout the ages, serving there as the, the norm for what the pastor has, has spoken, so that those who are listening can rejoice to hear the pastor preach the Word of God to them, and also be able to discern should the pastor speak something that is not correct in his sermon? Yeah, and, and this is because, as 33 starts out, our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay, right? so, so talk to us about that. Now, I we're just going to go ahead and say that, that whoever did the dividing of the verses here probably could have done a better job. And we're going to take 33a by itself with this section, not forgetting yeah. it, of course, for the next, but we're going to just take that by itself. So uh, this... God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, really seems to be an overarching uh, theological thought that really stands behind a lot of what Paul has said so far. Well, this whole section of chapters uh, on good order and worship, right, it all plays out to this, that God is not for confusion. So that is, again, the idea of of tongues that can't be understood, of multiple people all speaking chaotically, and but instead the Lord wants peace. And that primary peace, as you and I know, is the peace that we have because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that we are reconciled to God again. That war that we had with him with our sin, it's been destroyed. It's been finished. Uh, we have peace with God, and so we have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Um, and so, yeah, that's the beauty of our, of our Lord, and he wants us to know that peace. Yeah, yeah and, and that peace then should be evident in the way that we come together when we worship, so that the way that that we worship and the way we conduct ourselves within worship is shaped by the fact that this is who God is. He is not a God of confusion. He is a God of, of order, as, as we will hear later. He is a God of peace, one who has made peace with us through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, and so that reality shapes the way that we worship. Now, this Go ahead. Were you going to say something to that more? Okay. All right. So that conversation then continues. We're, we're still talking about this context of, of public worship, and speaking and silence continue to be the, the same ideas going forward. But Paul does now apply it in an, another way here. Again, the middle of verse 33, as we have it numbered, into verse 34. So, as in all the churches of the saints— the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, this is a word that for many today is offensive in our world, but it is the Word of God. So, Pastor Andrews, help us to, to begin to understand this correctly and helpfully. Right. You note the offense, and I, I can remember my seminary homiletics courses, learning how to preach. And one of the teachers, I don't remember which prophet was, but he told me that if there's a hard text like this, and this one never shows up in the lectionary, but if there's a hard text like this, you got to preach on it, right? You can't just read this, let it hang out there, and then move on and go preach on something simple. You've got to take on the hard text that's already causing confusion in the minds of the people that heard it. So I, I kind of thought about that at the beginning of the episode when you were just reading the text. I was like, there's, there's going to be some people who maybe are listening that aren't familiar with this text, and they're already going to be stuck on verses 34 and 35. So we do um, well to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. So this is 
quite a conundrum. Um, Paul's conversations in several places in his letters and what he has to say about the role of women is not going to sit well with people who've been raised in a culture uh, that is a culture of feminism. And, and we have a lot of Christian churches that call themselves progressive, um, and they have basically the idea they have is that the scriptures contain God's word, they point us to God, but that we grow in our understanding, we grow in our, our knowledge, and that this, even texts like this, well, they're not necessarily God's word. These are Paul's word and can be uh, then wrong. And so they will label Paul with our, our normal words of our culture today. They'll call him a misogynist and a bigot and, and things like that, and they'll dismiss these words. Some of them, because of that, just dismiss Paul's writings altogether. Others end up cherry-picking what to leave in Paul or what to leave out. But as people who see all of the New Testament as being God's word, divinely inspired, we have the task of then wrestling with the hard things Paul says and, and trying to learn from them rather than simply saying, oh, he's just bound by his times. He doesn't know better. Yeah. And, and to the, you know, because you're right, that is one choice. When you hear these words, they are offensive to the, the culture in which we were raised. And so they strike our ears as, well, that can't be. There is that, that that's an option that some people take is that Paul is wrong, or this is only Paul's idea and not God's idea or, or something like that. And I, I think just within the, the context of First Corinthians, Paul really doesn't leave that option for us if we want to take the entire epistle seriously, because we've seen him elsewhere be very careful to differentiate when he's, say, quoting from the Old Testament or quoting something from Jesus himself. I'm thinking especially of 1 Corinthians 7, where he will say, yeah. this comes from, from me, not from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean it's, it's not authoritative. It is. But he, he's very careful to differentiate where he's, he's you know, quoting something from the written scriptures or from the, the words that Jesus has given have been handed down versus his own thing. And so I, I don't think, again, it is an option some people take. But if you do want to take Paul seriously within the context of this epistle itself, I don't really think it's an option that's fairly on the table, besides all the theological implications as you laid out. I certainly agree, and I I think we have more than that, too, in the whole of of his writings, is that every time one of these difficult conversations comes up, he always roots it in God's Word. He always roots it in the created order and in the Old Testament. So we've got 1 Corinthians 11 from a few days back. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, we've got 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we also have Ephesians chapter 5. And those things are, they're not just put out there as, as you mentioned, like, this is my opinion, but they're, they're put out there as this is what is fitting with God's Word. This is what comes from how He created us to be. Um, and we see it here in verse 34, as the law also says, and that would be a reference collectively to the first part of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, okay, we're going to take these words of Paul seriously as the Word of God given through Paul by the Holy Spirit. Help us to, to understand these words, though they may strike our ears as offensive. Help us to understand what Paul is saying, and, and help us also to see why it's a good thing that Paul gives us this. Sure. So let's start out with the first sentence there. Women should keep silent in the churches, not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. I think it's important to wrestle with those two terms together, um, because as we see them next to each other, a woman speaking via verse 34 would therefore not be sitting in submission. 
um, it's they're set up as a contrast to each other. And I think that's important because the First Corinthians 11 passage, Paul wanted women everywhere to pray, which you can do silently, but he also said prophesy, which I don't know, maybe you'll disagree, but I don't think we can prophesy silently. I think prophesying is sharing God's word with other people. You can't do that without speaking. So Paul wants women to speak in the proper context. And in this case, um, the idea is that it's the opposite of her submission. So that is, it carries to speak in the congregation, carries with it authority. And women in the congregation don't have that authority because God gave that authority to the man. Uh, That's, again, created order. God created the man, the husband, to be the head of his family, not the wife. She was created to be his helper, which is a valuable and important role, but she's not the leader. And so men, step up. Men, lead. Do what you've been given to do. Mm. You know, thinking about the, the overarching theme of this chapter, as love builds up, there's a concern within this chapter for the love building up the whole body of Christ— and it seems that at least one of the connections that we can make here as well is that then, well, what happens in this body of Christ, the building up that needs to happen there, it should also build up the home. There should be a building up of the of the marriage. And so, again, given what he said in chapter 11, which as you rightly said, he attaches to the order of creation there when he talks about the husband being the head of the wife, for the wife to prophesy publicly within the worship service, as is being discussed here, would not, would not build up the husband and wife relationship. It would tear it down. And so that becomes then a matter of confusion, a matter of being right. done out of order, and going against this concept of love that builds up, and again, not only within the church, but within the home as well. Yeah, and this is one of the arguments that I do personally use. I think this this text is a little bit broader than women serving in, as pastors, but I do use this as a conversation point on that topic where, uh, you know, the, the example of a, a woman being a pastor who's also married, we know from 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, both places that the husband is to be the head of his home, he's to be the, the leader, both um, in the worldly senses, we might think of of responsibility, but the spiritual sense too. And if she's the pastor of her church, but he's called to be her leader, right? That just causes confusion. Which is it? Who's leading in that situation? Um, and I think that gets muddled, as you you mentioned, confusing here. Right. So it it, it prevents building up within the church. It prevents building up within the home. And so women should remain silent within the churches. Now, you, you mentioned just as, as one, you said it's broader than that, and I think, I think you're right, but there is a very clear application here. This would be one of the texts that we would understand as Paul prohibiting what is called women's ordination. Right. I mean, just the, the idea that if, if one of the primary tasks we're going to ascribe to our pastors is the, the office of preaching and teaching, this text, again, 1 Timothy 2 does the same thing. It, it prohibits that uh, for, for a woman to be in that position. And immediately our culture would yell out and say, that's not right, that's not fair. But God created us differently, and that's a good thing, right? And as you mentioned, you were bringing in the, the marriage relationship here. This is a good thing, 
as we look at marriage and where our goal is to strengthen marriage in a land where marriage is almost viewed as obsolete. Um, I think that might be the goal of our culture is to make it obsolete, but marriage matters and it's valuable. It's the building block that God created for society. And so to see men actually in those positions of leadership and taking on the role that the Lord gave them to do as they love and serve and provide for their neighbor, what's the best thing you can provide for your neighbor? It's God's word. So husbands, provide God's word to your wives. Uh, and 35 fits that. Uh, as we very specifically see Paul say, if, if they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home. A strengthening, a conversation, right? Go home, talk to your husband about God's word. Well, now you're talking about God's word at home. Right. Whereas if you talked at church with somebody else, then maybe that conversation in your marriage never happens. And as a couple, your faith together can become confused and separated going down separate paths. Yeah, I think, I mean, the matter of marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife is is very central to this chapter. It was very central to what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 11 already, and, and you've, I think we you can bring in Ephesians chapter 5, which is is about the marriage relationship very specifically, and we did when we talked about 1 Corinthians 11, because there, when, when Paul says the, that the head of the of the wife is, is her husband, that too sounds offensive to us. But when you when you listen to what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, and the, the way a husband and, and wife relate to each other within their marriage, that the, the husband loves as Christ loved the church, sacrificing himself, that's a good thing. Yeah. And the, the wife relates to the husband as the church relates to Christ. Like That's a good thing, that, that we are given to relate to Christ in the way that we are as members of the church. So it, it must be a good thing that the wife is given to relate to her husband in that way as well. And when we, we keep that central, then at least hopefully we're able to hear these things as good things and and hold on to them and in the face of a culture that that wants to confuse and and get rid of the order that God has given. Yeah, and we have that same word submit from Ephesians 5. We have it here in verse 34. I mean, it's a different form in English, it's submission. Um but the way I like to teach that word because I think we often look at it as like a a law heavy, you got to obey kind of a word. In, in the context of Ephesians 5, as you were pointing out, the, the connection, the analogy, the parallel is as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is to his wife. So I start there. What's it mean that the church submits to Jesus? It means we entrust ourselves entirely to his care. And for the wife then to entirely trust herself, entrust herself to her husband's care is a, a beautiful thing. And when you look at what the husband's then called to do, as he was to love her, and as you said, sacrifice himself for her. What faithful woman wouldn't want a husband who puts himself second or last, whatever the number ends up needing to be, but instead puts her interest in front of his own and is constantly seeking her care and her best and is willing even to give his life in order that she can continue to live? Mm, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's so what Jesus does for us. That's right, that's right. And so Paul's, Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 14 though they, they sound completely, well, they are completely countercultural. They Indeed. they are good for us. This is, this is Paul speaking the Word of God for the sake of order within the church, for the sake of, of order within the home, the upbuilding of marriages, the upbuilding of congregations. As you said, what a, what a wonderful thing that a husband and wife would go home and speak to each other about the Word of God to mutually, and then their families as well, 
this is this is a good thing that Paul has given, and, and God grant us to to put our sinful pride to death so that we would receive the goodness of his word in this in this text rather than rebel against it and think we know better than him, because it just never goes well for us when we try that. Yeah, that's our sinful nature at work. Yeah. But I mean, as a as a brief summary of these two verses then, I mean, let a woman come to church to receive. This is good. Let her be built up by the word of God and by the men that God has called to lead her, both her husband and her pastor. Sometimes that's the same person. Um, but let him do what God's given him to do and let him build her up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, as Paul continues to, to wrap things up in our section in verse 36, he, he challenges them. Was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? Uh, talk to us about those, those two questions he asks. Yeah, it almost reads like a, a snarky statement of rebuke that, as we've, again, seen so much division in the book, they have this pride among them that they've received this word of God, and now they can use it however they want. They can use it how they see fit rather than how God intends for his word to be used. Uh, we don't have that issue today with people taking Bible verses out of context. No, not at all. <laughs> there is nothing can, new under the sun, as Solomon can, reminds us. I can do all things. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, he he calls the Corinthians back to the Word of God, which has, has been given to them, not something that they come up with, to, to find their place within the order that God has given within the church. Now, in verses 37 and 38, we have, you know, a couple of if-then. So, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. On the flip side, in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What is Paul saying in those two verses? Paul's saying there's no middle ground. If you want to rightly lead the church in the city of Corinth, you have to agree with the words the apostle speaks. And for us, that's really easy to look back in hindsight upon because we see Paul's words as the authoritative word of God. So if our pastor wants to speak and he doesn't agree with the words in Scripture, that's not good. He should not be our pastor. It would have been perhaps understanding, uh, understandable to see how this could have been a challenge for them to hear that, because they don't yet have this book established as being God's holy word. Um, but he closes that rebuke pretty quickly and sharply in verse 38. If they refuse to acknowledge Paul's words here on good order in worship, then the church should not recognize that person. They should not give that person authority. They shouldn't let them prophesy nor speak in tongues. Hmm. So, I mean, today then, this is, this is applicable to our, our context today when it comes to the way we weigh doctrine and teachers. Yeah, there's so many, as we've been talking about the progressive Christian uh, section here, segment, they've not heeded Paul's warning right here in verses 37 and 38. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's, and that's essentially what... Like, was it the was it from you that the word of God came? This is again to that option that we talked about that isn't really on the table, but when that option is taken, they that is acting as if the word of God has come from us, as if we can set ourselves up as the authority within within the church. And again, as as we've seen, that just doesn't go well. And so you know, it doesn't. Women's ordination isn't the only thing there, and that really is a symptom. But when you see that symptom. It is a sign that the disease has, has spread pretty far already. Yeah, and I think that's observable for us as Christians today in that the, the churches that have and celebrate women's ordination, 
there are so many other things that kind of come as a package deal with that, that already other things are at play. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that the Word of God is not operating anymore as the authority in the Church. So Paul then wraps things up for this argument, and really for for this, I would say, this chapter, and, and maybe even this section of the epistle. He's going to turn to the resurrection, especially in chapter 15, verses 39 and 40. Paul says, "...so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues." but all things should be done decently and good order. Help us to see how Paul wraps this section up. Again, he, just as he started us today, he ends a potentially contentious section by calling them brothers. Just as we began, there is division among them, but they're still one body. They're still fellow believers in Christ. They are still his, God's people. And so, um, more to the point, prophecy is given first priority, I think, in the way we've seen through the whole chapter. But at the same time, if there's somebody present who can speak in tongues and also be interpreted, uh, this can be beneficial to be heard. So go ahead and let them speak. Um, do not forbid it. Also, <laughs> I think it's relevant to say do not require it, uh, as we have yeah. seen, unfortunately, in some Christian churches. Um, if, if it's there, fantastic. If it's not, hey, that's okay. We've got God's Word. And then verse 40 is, as you mentioned, a, a section break, perhaps, the idea of a summary for all of chapters 11 through 14, that things be done decently and in order. And so we seek to do that today. We don't just randomly get together on Sunday morning and do whatever anybody wants to do, right? We have an order for service already prepared. I love the fact that our order of service goes back 1900 years and almost looks identical to how they did it then. That's beautiful. There's so much value to that. But And then doing it decently. Um, so we, we try to do things that we do well. Mm-hmm. So Pastor Andrews, there's, there's a number of, of topics that we've discussed here today, and some of them more contentious in our culture than others, but all of them good. Uh, what do, how how do we? There are obviously the very clear applications in terms of the way we organize our worship, who should and shouldn't serve as pastors, those kinds of things. Uh, what's the overarching point for for us to take away from this text today? We've got about a minute left. I think it remains uh, here on our last verse to worship together, to gather together, and let it be done in a good, a decent, and orderly way. So as we gather together as the church, know who's your spiritual leader. Know who it is that is in your community that, I mean, this is why we call pastors, who you are going to trust to give you God's Word and to give you His sacraments, uh, the gift of baptism, the gift of the Lord's Supper. Know where you can go to find these things. And then for pastors, may we remember to do these things in, in good order and, and not just start trying to make things up or do whatever we want, but rather stick to verse 36, right? The Word of God came from him. Let's let the Word of God do what he intends for it to do. Let's let it build up his his people, his church. There's nothing, nothing more edifying than the Word of God and what Jesus has done for us. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, brother. God is a God of confusion, and a God is, God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. He has given us that peace in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
God grant that our churches would not be those of confusion or disorder, but would order ourselves in how we speak and sing together and how we ordain our pastors, that we would order ourselves according to that peace that he has given us in his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 14, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.